Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, the case of the wandering redhead by Lee Brackett. This is actually first published in Flynn's Detective Fiction magazine, April 1943. We're reading it out of a reprint in New Detective, uh, February 1951. Later on, uh, Lee Brackett would collect it uh, in a book of her hard-boiled noir crime stories uh, and change the title to Red-Headed Poison. Um, neither, neither title, though, The Case of the Wandering Redhead, and Red-Headed Poison are exactly describing to me what happens in the story. So I'm interested to hear uh, what you think of both of those titles. Um, it's it's It was really surprising to me. I went and looked. I was like, I've read a lot of Lee Brackett. How come uh, I don't remember the last thing I read by her? I went and looked, and I have never done a podcast on any of her stuff, which is very surprising to me because I've read a lot of her stuff. Um, and so starting here with something she's not well known for, uh, although maybe she is. It depends on whether you're a movie guy or you're a, uh, science fiction guy, right? Um, with, with something that is outside of her, the genre she's best known for, I think, um, is kind of a weird thing to do, but, uh, there is a touch of the SF in here as well. I'm interested in, in your ideas about that. Um, but maybe it's, it's better to discuss what you're SFing about mm -hmm. this um, after we have a sense of the story as a whole. And I do have my own sense of whether or not the uh, redheaded poison or the case of the wandering redhead is a good title. But maybe we should get the story out first. Mm -hmm. Would you uh, like to read the opening for us and then Maybe tell us about how the rest of the plot plays out. Yeah. I knew I had her that night. I climbed the dirty stairs, watching my breath steam in the cold, smelling the stale cabbage and thinking, tomorrow she'll be out of this. Tomorrow she'll be Mrs. Marty James. Six flights, almost running, thinking of Sheila Burke. Her mother let me in, a white-haired woman in a faded dress who wanted to slammed the door on me, but knew it wasn't any use. I grinned at her and, well, oh, Ma, I said. She said softly, don't Ma me, you cheap little hoodlum. I turned around slow so she could see my clothes. I've grown up, I said solemnly. I'm a big hoodlum now. She looked at me, hot blue-green eyes like Sheila's. No, Marty, inside you you're a little, and you'll never be anything else. She went out, shut the kitchen door on me. I didn't care. I'd waited a long time for Sheila. Any other dame, but she wasn't a dame. That, that's why I played her slow and let her fight, because I didn't want to break her. Gentle her, sure, but easy, so she'd still be Sheila when she gave in. I knew she was where she'd have to give in. Now, Tony had been watching her for me. He knew how her credit stood with the butcher and the guy at the grocery store. A girl's got to eat, and so does her ma. I sat down in that cheesy little dump that was twin to the one I grew up in. My heart was choking me. 
and the palms of my hands were wet. The story goes on from there. And we come to learn that Marty James has seen Sheila just coincidentally on the street. He's described, she's described by him as incredibly attractive. She's wearing a faded summer dress, but she looks better than any woman walking down the street in a thousand with less than a thousand dollars worth of clothing on her. <laughs> she's just gorgeous. In many ways, although she doesn't have the money in the class to go with it, the story is reminiscent of The Great Gatsby, where we have a gangster who is forever wanting to get that romantic ideal. But in this case, there's no playing around. Sheila is adamant from the beginning. She'll have nothing to do with Marty because he has blood on his hands. Mm-hmm. We wind up getting some very uh, vivid description of the violence that Marty has. Um, he almost decks some fellow who, who has just, in a Galahad kind of way, bought groceries for Sheila and her mother and is there trying to protect them. Uh, but he gets called, Marty gets called away by his uh, his, his gun boy, Tony, um, and has to go over to an apartment where another hoodlum with his girl, Dell. Who knows what it's like to be a, uh, a gangster's girl uh, and cooperates appropriately are waiting. Turns out it's a setup that Tony has worked with uh, Buckwald, Marty's competitor, and Capper, a guy who apparently is an information source for the gangsters in the neighborhood, um, to set Tony up. And they're going to kill him. But they don't want to kill him in Dell's apartment because the blood would give it away, it would raise a problem. So they try to restrain him, and then they're going to get rid of him after they've knocked him out. There's an enormously well-described fight in mm-hmm. which he manages to kill everybody else. He goes to an apartment that he has set up in advance, not near his home, so that he won't be caught in the easy way cops sometimes could, bandages his wounds, and then climbs in the window of Sheila's apartment where Sheila, the mother, and that fellow who had bought groceries are eating, and he compels them to act as if he is going to get an alibi from them. But, in fact, Sheila's mother manages to get away and call the police, and in trying to escape, um, Marty fires at the police, the police fire higher-caliber weapons at him, and the whole story is told from Marty's viewpoint, somewhere six to eight hours before he's about to die. Um, He's dying for his love of Sheila. And the last lines are, I think, quite perfect. Mm -hmm. If I'd never seen Sheila Burke, if I'd stuck to dames like Dell who know what's what and won't throw you in a pinch, yeah, but I didn't. I had to reach for the moon. Simple, Tony said. He was right. I brought it on myself, a sap crying for the stars. But I still wish I I could have kissed her just once when she wanted to be kissed. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great ending. Now, I think the first page shows us how Marty begins by thinking of her as an object. She, he talks about her the way you would break a horse. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to gentle her. Right? Issues of class are so clear here. They grew up in adjoining apartments. And 
well, identical apartments. Yeah, but the they twin didn't know each other. to the one I grew exactly. up in, he says, a cheesy little dump right. with dirty he's stairs. Big... Right. But he's managed to get out of it. But he got out of it by this, by being a hoodlum. Clearly a smart hoodlum, but a hoodlum. The only thing that didn't make him smart was, was Sheila. And I think we get this incredible description of her and her red hair and eyes and so on. Um, I think that that title, Red-Headed Poison, is actually pretty good. Yeah, I agree. The story is from Marty's viewpoint, and she's what killed him. Because if he hadn't seen her, if he just stuck with really sexy but compliant women like Dell, he'd have been fine. Tony wouldn't have turned on him if Marty had continued to be the top dog in the area. But he was slipping because of his affection, attraction to Sheila. Mm-hmm. And we can see how useless it is. Um, the end of that first page, I sat down in, in that cheesy little dump that was twin to the one I grew up in. My heart was choking me, and the palms of my hands were, were wet. And i got to tell you, Jesse, that's a double entendre. <laughs> This guy has just been trying and trying and trying to get beyond just dreaming of Sheila. But what he's really good at is fighting. Yeah. So issues of class, love, loyalty, money, violence, uh, and sex. There's a lot going on in this story. Every every word does work here. Like, you know, you were talking about his hands. Um, the in the drive back to meet some guy for business, his I love this line. Tony, his sidekick, his quote prime gun boy with eyes you couldn't see into. Um, that comes up again. The eyes you couldn't see into, and then later on, uh, there are these this uh, young kid, this Galahad's eyes, who you can see into, right? Um, and of course, we never see our uh, viewpoint character's eyes, but I get the sense that they're, uh, they're not soft. <laughs> and yet, and yet, there is that line, the one that makes me think of, you know, aspiring to greater things than being, uh, I, I guess he, he's literally called out a racketeer in here, right? We don't know exactly all his business, but racketeering covers pretty much all of those kinds of crimes. And uh, at the end, you, you you called it right out. You said uh, he, he was right. I I bought it on my. I brought it on myself. A sap crying for the stars. That was the third time that came up. And there's a number of times where it, it feels like fairy tale, you know, threefold magic. Um, things are happening. Um, and the first time it comes up, I want to read that section. This is on page 101, second column. You've got blood on you, Marty, and he will <laughs> very shortly literally have blood on him. Um, and you mentioned the hands earlier that do have blood on them, metaphorically. Uh, I started toward her again. I don't know what I was going to do. Only I had to make her understand somehow that all that all didn't matter. That where she was concerned, I wasn't Marty James, the racketeer, but just a guy in love. In love, so I wanted to cry with it, like I used to cry for the stars 
when I was a kid. And I'm, that was a strange line, right? Why would why would he cry for the stars? Well, that's not the only time it happens. It happens at the end, and it happens again. I'll uh, read that one here as soon as I find my third star. <laughs> uh, here it is. Oh, yeah. Um, it's on the last page as well. Uh, she was something I could never touch any more than the stars I used to cry for. And that aspiration, right? You know, I, I, I was thinking about it, what, what, what does this metaphor mean? It's like he's a baby, he's in his crib, and, you know, the parents have put up a little uh, mobile above the crib for the kid to look at. Maybe it's the stars and the moon. The moon's mentioned in here, right? Um, but reaching for the stars is is not just reaching for the stars in, in from the crib, reaching up to the mobile above you. It's it's a it is a class movement, but more importantly, it's also like um, we are better than this hard scrabble crap of not being able to eat. We could be better. So his way out is through crime, and he made himself a big a big man, right? And the mother says, "No, you'll always be a small man. No matter how big he gets, he can't really escape." this sort of low, noir, hard-boiled earth that he's on and reach for the clean, pure stars. It is a science fictional kind of, like, aspiration. She's stuck in this this gutter of horror. With the title, The Case of the Wandering Redhead, I say she. They're all stuck in it. It makes it sound like it's it's going to be a detective story and there, there was this wandering redhead. Um... Uh, I wonder what color hair uh, he has. It's not red. It's called out. He's He's got some hair. Right? Everybody gets a nice description. But uh, nobody's going to wander very far in this story. It's very grounded in this gutter world. And uh, the Galahad who came from the farm and who almost killed his dad, you know, everybody plays a role here. Everybody's got a motive, something going on in the background. And it's incredibly dense. And yet it doesn't feel that way. Indeed, it reads very easily. In part because it is activating well-known tropes of the genre. Oh, yeah. But it activates them in ways that are unusual. We actually feel a kind of... uh, Pity? Attachment for Marty because he wants so desperately the way Gatsby does. But, of course, we can't stand him because he's abusing this woman, abusing her mother. I mean, he abuses people everywhere. That's how he survives. Mm-hmm. That's how he, he thrives. So the complexity of our sense of him is, in a way, reminiscent of the complexity that authors who are thought of as much more literary give us. I mean, mm-hmm. think of um, Light in August by Faulkner, where... You know, we, we get someone who is a brutal murderer, but we come to understand his past and understand why he is the way he is. Um, th- this is uh, it's a rich story. I like the way you point out the repetition of the stars. It's so comfortable. It's such an easy use of the terms mm-hmm. that I don't think we see it as necessarily uh, planned from uh, the standpoint of writing craft. Right. But, uh, 
But in fact, I think that there is a lot of writing craft here oh, yeah. that is done knowingly. Uh, there's even um, a line, oh, it's a good trick, I told him. Seems like I saw it in a movie one time, right? but, but it's still a good trick. So the story itself is reminding us that it knows that it's part of a genre. Uh, if I could take a look at an, another phrase, word that comes up again and again, three times, as you mm-hmm. say, um, Marty is um, in in uh, the room where he is going to be ambushed. Um, and Tony is looking at him. Tony looked right back. Black, hard eyes, and a rat's grin. It's your own fault, Marty, he said. You don't tend to business no, no more. When a guy goes simple on a dame like you have, it's time for a change. Capper laughed bouncing the sap up and down on his palm. Now, when you first see that word, bouncing the sap, um, mm-hmm. I think we figure in this context that it's one of those cautious, you know, it's uh, something he's going to hit somebody with. Yep. Um, and yet, notice that it's bouncing it up and down on his palm. The sap comes up again. Um, I said, yeah, I started to get up. Capper hit me across the throat with the sap. Yep. Not too hard. They didn't want too many marks on me because they're trying to stage his death as if it's an accident later. Um, so he gets hit with the sap and becomes voiceless. He can no longer function because of the sap. But in that last page, he says, um, Tony said, uh, simple Tony said, Danny Marty was just thrown off by by Sheila. He was right. I brought it on myself. A sap Mm. crying for the stars. So suddenly that word, we realize he has been the tool of his own destruction. Yep. What a clever reuse of that term. And as you say, we read the story so easily. It just Mm. carries us along while under the surface, below our conscious level, I think, for many of us in the reading, it's building and building and building, accreting meaning and substance around one simple concept or another. Mm-hmm. Food is another one of those. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, the sense of sensory detail is amazing. I mean, everybody's clothing is, you know, this Todd guy, he's dressed like a scarecrow, a farmer with farmer heat, feet and knobby hands. Um, the, the clothing description is amazing. Every, everybody gets like a, a picture, right? But mm-hmm. I, I think we can underestimate like how, cr- yeah, she seems to have it like the knack, right? So, um, another of those three times things on the same page, back to 101, um, it happens three times. Um, he says something that if you're a hard boiled, you know, horrible criminal who's, you know, murdered people for money, you wouldn't think you'd be this open. But he just says it. He says, I said it. It's the only way I know to fight, honey. I said to her, Oh, look, Sheila, I don't want to fight you. I never did. I just, I love you, Sheila. I put my hands out. Down a couple paragraphs. It was hard to talk. I still couldn't look at her. I said again, I love you, Sheila. You act like it. Oh, Lord, Marty, why can't you let me alone? I love you, Sheila. And then, I'll never marry you. 
I could see her face now. It was cold and shut away. It was something I couldn't touch. Um, and then we get that line about the stars again, right? So he's invoking that threefold magic of fairy tales where you say my name three times, the magic. Uh, these words are the words that make people marry you. I love you. I love you. I love you. And it fails. That's why this is a noir story. It's not so much that he dies. It's that, you know, those good, clean aspirations he has to reach reach for something better than this dirty the dirty stairs and the stale cabbage. You know, these mean streets fail. It is because he had to uh, hard scrabble out of it. it. It reminds me so much of, of this writing, like this whole genre. It makes me say, you know, like who is the, who's the real bad guy? Well, obviously this guy's the bad guy, right? Um, and the other, uh, racketeers who are trying to murder him, they're all bad guys too. Sheila is, I don't think she, she's an object rather than a subject. She, she has her own will here. But really, the bad guy is nobody in these mean streets. It's the thing that made the streets mean, right? And his choice of a way to get out of it, it wasn't a good one. But the farm ain't much better. The dirty farm where the father's beaten the mother and the son has to flee just so he doesn't... Stepfather, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, the stepfather, right? It's it's straight out of those fairy tales. Um it, it, that's that's the magic that Lee Brackett has, right? You can see, like, this is why she ended up making, you know, some of the most iconic scripts uh, f- from Hollywood, and and so many fantastic SF stories. It's all here. She's got the goods. She does. See, you know, you see again just what you're talking about that farm, that hard scrabble mm-hmm. farm that the kid comes from. Um, that's that's how Jay Gatz grows up, right? That same same ambivalence. Joe Christmas um, is half black and therefore is always oppressed by society um, in light in August. That's how he grows up to be as as terrible as he is uh, because of the oppression of others. It's the system that makes the bad guys bad, and because they want more, they want something finer, better. Um, we sympathize with them, even though they are simultaneously bad. Brackett really does get so much in. You know, this is originally published, you said, in 1943, mm-hmm. not in 1951. Right. We have. So in 43, Americans are already um, fairly well aware of Australians in a way they maybe had not been 10 years earlier mm-hmm. because they're fighting together. Yeah. And in Australian slang by this time, well established by this time, Sheila is a generic name for a girlfriend. It's sure not is. pejorative, but it's just, oh, she's another Sheila. Like, she's another bird. It would have been the, the mm-hmm. slang in the 1950s and 60s in England, or a dame in, uh, in America at the same time, or dolls, guys and dolls. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's a Sheila, which just makes her a generalized girlfriend, but she's much better than Dell. There's no doubt about that, at least in Marty's eyes. But her last name, Burke, Mm-hmm. is also a word. Yep. And it means an impediment or an objectionable person. Yep. Um, so 
here she is. She's a girlfriend who gets in his way. Um, she doesn't try to. I mean, he just sees her by accident on the street. So as you were saying, Jesse, it's just the way things are. Yeah. That's really what m- makes something noir. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's that hard end. But what makes something hard-boiled is, is your approach to it, right? And what's so tragic here, and I, I do see this as a sort of a mini-tragedy, is that, he, you know, we, we're talking about him wanting to break her. He actually is trying not to. That's that's his approach. Is like it, he, but he has the worst tools imaginable, right? So he's trying to starve her into submission, rather than you know beat her or threaten her, uh, the mom, right? He's trying to you know coerce her into this marriage, and she's she just doesn't want to go down that direction. Um, does that mean she's going to become like Dell? We don't really see it from her point of view, but. The the tragedy here is, you know, he is poisoned himself. Uh, when he talks about his his um, gun boy, his prime gun boy, there's a, it, that comes back again on page 103. Uh, she opened the door, a flashy blonde in a red negligee. And this is where I was like, the, the, the red keeps spreading around here. I pushed in fast. She opened her mouth, but nothing came out. A big, good-looking guy in shirt sleeves got up off the sofa, knocking his drink onto the floor. Buckwald and Dell. Tony was just behind me. Yeah, Tony, my pal, my sidekick, my prime gunny with eyes you couldn't see into. He hit me then, back of the ear, with the rod I paid him to carry. So he pays Tony to carry his gun so if they're arrested he doesn't go to prison for gun charges and what's Tony do he saps him with his own gun the gun he pays him to carry this is his best guy his best bud his ally and he's being betrayed and he's being betrayed because he's no longer doing the job he's no longer the right fit for this organization he's on the outs and why because he's all focused on this girl and it's almost like he he's trying to escape an the new dirty place he put himself in with clean suits and expensive cars you know and hirees and he can't once you're dirtied you know, you're you're dirtying yourself with all those around you. So uh, it makes me think of that Galahad guy, right? Who uh, this story is full of characters. There's a ton of characters. It doesn't feel like that, but they're all there for a reason. Galahad is the mirror to our our hero here, who is just a horrible person. He he's he's taller. He's um, cleaner eyed, right? clear-eyed he's and he's bringing the food and he, preventing her indeed he hawks his watch right he puts it into pawn sort of a reference to uh, the gift of the magi i think very much so it, this is i mean it, those are the it's I the mean, same oh, setting right restore oh yeah I mean. absolutely which is very opposite of noir right opposite of hard-boiled they're in a hard-boiled existence but it's isn't it all nice that Christmas can be, uh, you know, sh- sh- shared again? And you know, her hair will regrow, and he can, 
he can get his watch out of a hawk and then they can all be happy once, you know, the American dream comes true. This is saying the American dream is inescapable and it's a nightmare. There's another good example of this mirroring um, that makes me wonder about that last suggestion about the inescapability of the nightmare. Capper is the name of the fellow who is clearly the head of everybody. Mm-hmm. He's the one that they listen to and take orders he's from. He's like so the capo, comes the in, captain, right? He's like, I didn't hear that. The capo, that's the Italian for... Exactly, right. Yeah. It comes from the Latin word for head. Um, it's what we call chapters, chapters. Um, so his name is Capper, but of course to cap somebody is also slang for killing somebody. Sure, with a gun. Right. So Capper is the name that Tony invokes to get uh, Marty to come over to Buckwalt's where he is going to be uh, um, ambushed. Uh, Tony is standing there, uh, sitting in the chair after he's been hit in the back of the head uh, by by Tony, the passage you just read to us. Mm-hmm. Capper had come in from somewhere, the bedroom, I guess. Uh, Capper has access to a bedroom. Marty doesn't. And was standing beside me close, bouncing a sap up and down on the palm of his hand. He was a stocky, red-headed guy with a dumb-looking pan that wasn't dumb at all. Right. And I saw this. As you said, everyone gets their hair described except Mm -hmm. our protagonist. Sheila's redhead is in the title. Yeah. Now we have one other redhead. She is tall and slender for a girl. He is stocky and short for a guy. She has fog in her eyes and intelligence. He has a dumb-looking pen, mm-hmm. but it wasn't dumb at all because it had um, a kind of gutter intelligence. Mm-hmm. She is the mirror image of uh, Capper mm-hmm. and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And that use of mirroring characters, again, subtle. It just goes right down. We don't it does. notice it. But, but I would suggest... Because she survives this story and Capper does not, I think the story is suggesting to us that there is a way out of the American dream, that there are values down on the farm that can somehow be brought back into the city and that those who hang on to those values can somehow move forward. So I think that it's a, a fairy tale not at all. The three rep- the repetitions mm-hmm. don't lead to salvation or success for the protagonist. It's not a fairy tale. You're right to see that contrast. But it still has a good ending, I think, a positive end for our society. Mm. Uh, I, I think that's why I like the case of the wandering redhead better, because it makes me say, which redhead are they talking about? Clearly, the wandering of of uh, the story is actually done by the main character, right? Rather than uh, Sheila's basically seen on her doorstep and in her house. Whereas this other redhead that shows up in the story um, is she, he, she, this is not the same person, but the redhead in both cases is 
a kind of poison to them both, to the same guy, right? One, she's making him dumb. She's making him make a mistake. From his point of view, it ultimately kills him. And that death comes from another redhead. She's not the one who kills him. It's not the cops who come. It's his boss who says, you're, you're making a mistake. You're, you're messing it up. We need you dead. And it's, it's like, you're right. They're mirrors. And Galahad and Dell might be mirrors. It is very reflective, this story. It allows you to sort of, it feels like a, a, a recipe, but a perfect one. And you don't even notice that it was cooked, right? Just as with parallel mirrors, you can see more and more and more and mm. more with a story like this. There's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.